We sing, uh, take my life and let it be, and take my heart, take my hands, take my silver, take my gold, take everything that I have and make it yours. Um, What stands in the way of all of those prayers becoming a reality? What is the greatest threat to all of those prayers that are godly prayers, that are Christ-centered prayers? We want Jesus to be our everything. What is the greatest danger to our spiritual lives such that that would not come about? Many people would give different answers. Um, Some would say it's greed. If you have a greedy heart like uh, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, he will be struck down uh, with leprosy. You'll be judged. Your greedy heart is the biggest danger to your soul. Some would say sexual immorality like David with Bathsheba who never fully recovered. Even the kingdom that he was a part of never really uh, had the same momentum because of how grievous and great a sin that that was. Some would say being in love with this world, worldliness, even as we studied over the summer in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You could go to Demas, who being in love with this world, neglected the faith, left the faith, walked away. What, what is the greatest danger to our souls? I believe though all of those sins are horrific sins, they aren't the bedrock of sin. They aren't the, danger, the bedrock of a danger that we face. The greatest danger that we face is ultimately not an external force outside of us. It's an internal force in our very own souls. And it is pride. Pride is the soul's greatest enemy. Pride isolates us from the God of grace and from the grace of our God. It's the greatest danger facing us on an individual basis. It's the greatest danger facing our church as a whole. Jonathan Edwards, when he was speaking of why the Great Awakening was prematurely ending, um, it had an amazing beginning and it had an amazing ministry, but it started to collapse very quickly and ended prematurely. And he said that it was because of undiscerned spiritual pride that God chose to end the Great Awakening. People became so proud and puffed up that God said enough. Pride undermines unity. It causes divisions. It grows factions. It fosters bitterness. It keeps us from serving and ministering to one another the way that God commands. Proverbs 16, Proverbs 13 tells us that pride brings leaders down and destroys them, and it destroys, it goes before anyone's destruction. One pastor has said it this way, pride ruins pastors, pride ruins churches more than any other thing. It is more insidious in the church than radon is in the home. We can so easily busy ourselves with ministry and service, even to one another, even with a a sense of, I want to honor the Lord in these things. But if our hearts are not in the right place, and if we do it for prideful reasons and not with humility to serve one another, it's only a matter of time before our ministry crumbles. It's only a matter of time before destruction comes. There needs to be an emphasis on humility on an individual level, at a church level, at a leadership level. We need to be a humble people if we're to walk the way that God has called us to walk. Now, as we come to this topic, I'm incredibly reluctant to address this topic this morning because I am not a humble man. I'm a very prideful man. And when I come to this topic, I think maybe, maybe we should wait until I have a little bit of a better handle on this before we start preaching 
and dialoguing over this issue of pride. One of uh, Winston Churchill's most famous little funny quips that he had was when he was um, arguing against his main political opponent, uh, Clement Attlee. And a man said, why are you so angry towards Attlee? Why, why are you so judgmental? He's a very nice man. And he said, Mr. Churchill, isn't Attlee at least a very humble man? To which Winston Churchill said, yes, he's a very humble man. And he has much to be humble about. Um, I am not a very humble man, even though I have much to be humble about. And I know how much God hates my pride. And I, I desperately want to change. When I look around at my friends, I look around at our church and I see pride in others, it's very easy to think, what's wrong? Why, why are they so prideful? And then what I realize is that it's just a mirror to the pride in my own heart. The only reason that I'm adept at seeing pride in others is because I know what it looks like. Because I'm a master of it. I'm an expert in pride. And so I want to ask the Lord this morning, how do I grow a godly hatred for pride? How do I destroy pride in my own heart? How do I fight to cultivate godly humility? How do I do these things in a Christ-exalting, God-honoring way? I think the answer can be found for us in 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 1, though our study will only be in a couple verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, because of that reality, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, I pray that you would do a mighty work in our church. I pray that you would do a mighty work in my own heart. I pray that you would do a mighty work in our leadership. And that you would do a mighty work in all of us at an individual level. Such that we'd be able to look back ten years from now and see this semester of our church's life as changing the course of our own character and our own ability to cultivate humility.
God, we all need to be more humble. We all need to destroy pride. So Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would open our eyes to see from your word very clearly what you think of pride. Give us an awareness of God's attitude towards pride. Not our attitude, not a man-centered vision of what we think about pride, but God's perspective. May we feel with his heart. And God, even as we consider communion at the end of our service, of our time together, God, may, may this time in your word press us into our need for grace. May we run to the cross together, individually, corporately, and find grace, knowing that there's a qualifier so clearly here. He gives grace to the humble. So just decimate us, God. Break us of every ounce of pride so that we could all be wonderfully unimpressed by ourselves and serve with joyful gladness everyone around us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Peter is writing in 1 Peter uh, to churches that were scattered throughout the area that we would now call Turkey. Persecution had begun. Nero's accusation that the Christians had burned Rome is starting uh, persecution on a rampant level. Um, Everyone is scattering Uh, Believers are scattering, and so Peter writes to these believers that are scattered in that region, and they're experiencing great suffering and hostility. And the theme of his whole letter is to stand firm in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of trials. The purpose of 1 Peter is to teach believers how to live as Christians in the midst of hostilities. And in chapter 5, as you can see, he moves to talk about the relationships that are found in the context of the local church. Verses 1 through 4 address the elders, the leaders of the church. And then verses 5 through 11 transition from the leaders to the members of the church. With that little word, likewise, in verse 5. You younger men, likewise. Just like I said about the elders, I'm connecting the relationship here. Be subject. But the main proposition of verses 5 through 7 is clearly stated at the end of verse 5. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a quotation from Proverbs chapter 3 verse 34. That's the main proposition. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And around that main proposition, Peter gives us three imperatives that support it. Be subject to your elders clothe yourselves with humility, and humble yourselves under the mighty right hand of God. So those three imperatives, those three commands, be subject, clothe yourself, and humble yourself, all center around the hinge of the main proposition, God is opposed to the proud. You see it there, right? Verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for or because the reason you should do this is the main proposition. God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then verse 6, therefore, because of what I just said, back to the hinge, since God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves under the mighty right hand. And then verse 7 gives us a, a way to do that, cast your cares on him. So the main proposition, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, that's the hinge, and you have three imperatives on that hinge. And if we had two hours, 
we would do both of those together, the hinge and the three propositions that hang on it, or the three imperatives that hang on the main proposition. But since we don't, we're going to just look at the hinge this morning. We're just going to look at the quotation, Proverbs 3.34, and then next week we will look at the practical path to humility, how to apply these truths, how to live out those imperatives. But for this morning, we are going to ask, what is pride and how does God deal with it? Just two main questions that we're going to ask and answer from God's Word. What is pride? How do we define pride? Because God apparently really does not like it. And so we're going to ask, how does He deal with what He does not like? Two questions. What is pride and how does God deal with prideful people? What is pride? Well, again, Peter quotes in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's a direct quotation from the Septuagint, which is Greek translation of the Old Testament. So this is a direct quotation. James actually uses the same quotation in James 4, verse 6. Proverbs as a whole, we've talked about this before in hermeneutics or biblical interpretation, Proverbs as a whole is a book that is to be taken not as uh, promises but as principles. Not as promises but as principles. These are, are truisms for how life usually works. There are some exceptions to the rules, but this is how life normally works. But there are a few verses that are absolute promises because they come from the character of God, and this is one of those verses. This isn't a principle though it has principles inside of it, this is a promise. This is a timeless law of God's moral universe. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, if he's opposed to the proud, we have to ask, what is pride? What is pride? That's question number one. Let's tackle it together. What is pride? The Greek word for proud there in verse five means to shine above others or to show oneself above others, to shine above or to show oneself above others. The main idea behind the word is how we look at others, the pictures that we look down on others, to shine ourselves above, gloriously above others. Pride is to see yourself as the standard against which others should be measured. That's the way that pride expresses itself toward one another. Pride also has an element toward God. So pride expresses itself towards one another by shining down on others, looking down on them. You are the standard and they have not measured up to you. Toward God, this word demonstrates itself in the self-sufficiency and independence, saying I don't need God. So pride towards God is when sinful creatures aspire to the status and position of God, refusing to acknowledge their own dependence upon God. Charles Bridges says it this way, Pride lifts up the heart against God. It contends for supremacy with Him. Pride lifts up the heart against God. Yep, that makes sense. Every sin does that. But he takes it a step further, and this, this sentence just undoes my heart. It contends, my pride contends for supremacy with Him. I want to be God. You're not doing a good job. I could do a better job than you. He continues, How unseemly, moreover, is this sin that a creature so utterly dependent, so fearfully guilty, but so prideful in his heart toward God. A proud person seeks to glorify himself and not God. A proud person attempts to rob God of the glory only he is worthy to receive. Pride has many forms, but only one end, and that is self-glorification. So pride 
with others is to see yourself as better than others, and pride towards God is to see yourself as self-sufficient. I don't need God. That's what pride is. Pride is the very first sin that was ever committed. It's the very first sin that ever entered the universe. Isaiah chapter 14, Lucifer wanted to be God. I, I don't like the way you're doing things, and I want the praise that you're getting. I want the glory you're receiving. I can do your job. And through Satan, pride was part and perhaps even the very essence of the first sin that humanity brought in. You want to be like God. You want to be God. Make the rules for yourself. Pride is the essence of every single sin. Every sin that you can think of, you can point back to a foundation in pride because ultimately you're saying, God's rules are ridiculous. My way is better. My way is better. It's present in every single human heart. John Calvin says, There is no man who does not cherish within himself some idea of his own excellence. There's nobody who doesn't think on some day as he walks past the mirror or thinks about his achievements and goes, hmm, I'm doing good. Not one person. But because it is so universal, because this sin is in all of us, we become comfortable with this presence. You struggle with it? Me? Yeah, me too. Oh, we all do. Okay, we all kind of struggle with this to some degree. We're all in the same boat. We're all okay. Let's work on it together. It becomes one of those respectable sins that Jerry Bridges talks about. We can tolerate it because we all kind of struggle with it, so we're not going to call it out in somebody else because we know we struggle with it too. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, Pride is the worst viper in the heart. It's the first sin that ever entered the universe. It lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. It's the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working of any lusts whatsoever. It's ready to mix with everything. And nothing is so hateful to God, contrary to the spirit of the gospel, or of so dangerous a consequence, and there is no one sin that does so much to let the devil into the hearts of the saints and expose them to his delusions. C.S. Lewis says that pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats the very possibility of love, and it eats the very possibility of even having common sense. Pride is dangerous. Why? Why is pride so dangerous? There's a number of reasons why pride is dangerous. Just, I wanted to think through a couple with you. Number one, pride is self-deceiving. Pride is dangerous because we are self-deceived. We are, we are usually more perceptive of pride in others than we are of ourselves. We become so prideful that we don't even recognize our own pride. Typically, when we come to evaluating ourselves, we, we kind of cheat on that evaluation. We keep others, we hold others to a very rigid standard, but then we cheat on our own evaluation. We have a more inflated view of ourselves than we should. If you happen to doubt that people are self-deceived, every single person is, if you happen to doubt that we are self-deceived, I just want to want you to consider for, for a moment American Idol. Um, how many tone-deaf auditions are there of people who think, I'm going to be the next American? I mean, they, they're interviewed. I'm, all of my family says I'm amazing. My aunts and uncles think I'm the best. I'm going to be the next American Idol. They get up there, they sing. And sometimes you laugh. Sometimes you kind of hurt for them. Sometimes you just want to turn it off because your ears are starting to bleed. This is, this is awful. But how did they get there? They got there because of self-deception. I, I, I think I'm way better than I am. I think those shows 
give us compelling evidence that we as a human race have a knack for self-deception. We do. Just think about it today. If I handed out a quiz to everybody in this church right now, and I said, just considering us as a whole, I want you to rate yourself above average or below average on these things. Your ability to get along with other people, your honesty, your work ethic, your basic intelligence, and your morality. Just above average or below average. Are you above average or below average with all of us together? Sign it, hand it in. I think every single quiz would say, I'm above average. I'm above average. I mean, I'm, I'm not the best, but I'm doing better than most. But if you think about, if, if we're all above average, we're, we're miss, average half is above and half is below. So we're, we're missing the people that willingly admit, I am not God's gift to mankind. Not only do we not want to admit it, but I don't think we really believe it. I don't think we really believe we're that bad. And if we really believe that we're in the top percentile of everything that's important in godliness, then it's going to be really hard not to be arrogant. If we really think we're that amazing in everything, it's going to be really hard not to be arrogant. And that leads us to the second danger, the second reason why pride is so deadly and dangerous. Pride brings about spiritual comparisons. Of course it will, because if you're doing so well and you think that you're better than everybody else, you're going to start comparing to say, look, I'm doing better than you are. We know that we shouldn't look down on others, but we see it as a small sin. Judgmentalism, critical spirit, just a small sin. Like you've got not flossing your teeth, and then just above that you've got judging others. Just a small sin. No, 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 it, it comes from a heart that says, I hate God. It comes from a heart of pride that says, I want to be God. Your rules are not good rules. Here's a good question to ask. Is there a group of Christians or of friends in your world for whom you develop a knee-jerk response of disgust, disdain, or aversion? I don't, I don't really like them. I don't want to be with them. I, I disagree with them. I, if the answer is yes, it's an early warning sign that you're headed down a path of arrogance. Remember Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee says, I thank God that I'm not like this man. Let's be honest. Do you have people? Do you have a list of that? I thank God that I'm not like so-and-so. Who's on that list? Who's on your, I'm glad I'm not like that person list? I have no idea what tempts you to feel superior. I have no idea what kind of people you're tempted to look down upon. But we all have lists, and most of us have no idea how dangerous and foolish those lists truly are, how destructive and deadly they are. So pride wants to look down on others. Pride wants to condemn others. Pride wants to say, I'm better, and is self-deceived and makes spiritual comparisons even in the self-deception. We're self-deceived, and we compare ourselves to others. And that's why one pastor says, pride makes you a predator, not a person. You're not even a person. You're a predator. Pride manifests itself in many ways. Let me give you a couple verses. You can look these up on your own time. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. Daniel 4, verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar had pride in his accomplishments. Look at what I've built. Look at Babylon. Look at everything that I've made. We can have a sense of pride in our own accomplishments. That leads us to look down on others, to shine down on others. They haven't accomplished that. Or to think that because we've accomplished something, we can do what God's doing. We can do his job. 
Sometimes it's our position. Matthew chapter 23 talks about loving places of honor in the banquets. I, am, uh, I have a title, I have a, a position that is one of honor and respect, and we can have pride in that. Matthew chapter 6, we can have pride in our spiritual activities. We can take pride in doing something in the service of God. In Matthew 6, Jesus talks about uh, pride infecting our giving of tithes and our prayer before God. You remember Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, the Pharisees, Jesus says, does all their deeds to be seen. They want to be seen. So they do religious, spiritual activities. Sometimes we have pride in our gifts. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 3. We have pride in our gifts. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Just think of how silly that, that statement is. We have pride. We take pride in our gifts. It's a gift. It's been given to us. We didn't even earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to achieve it and to acquire it, but we look at what I've been given, and we take pride in it. We take pride in our knowledge. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Sometimes I think that this book should have on the outside a warning label stamped. Warning. If you read this, you can be infected with spiritual pride. And then I thought, well, it does. All over the place in the Bible, it says that. Be careful how you read this book, because this book, if you just read it for knowledge, this book can puff you up and become, you can become a predator and not a person in your pride. Richard Baxter says uh, in his Reformed Pastor, he gives a list of how we struggle with pride. He says this, we, we excessively talk about ourselves and our accomplishments. Again, please hear these for you, because you could so easily say, oh, I know a friend that when we get together, all they do is talk about themselves. And yes, they struggle with pride, just like you. Do you excessively talk about yourself and your accomplishments? Do you compare your gifts, talents, jobs, education, even ministry against those of others? Do you expect people will serve you because of the position that you hold? Do you act like the resident authority on every topic? Are you easily offended when things don't go your way? Do you see yourself as superior to others and your views more practical than others? Do you see your experiences as being more valuable than others? Are you critical of the sins of others while you tolerate your own? Are you impatient by the slow progress of others around you? Are you expecting everyone to agree with your positions on doctrine, theology, and methodology? Do you resist and refuse all criticism? Do you cater to people of wealth and prominence? Do you force your own agenda in the church? Do you envy the gifts and opportunities and reputations of others? He says, if we see ourselves in this list, then we are guilty of the biblical sin of pride. And we must ask with Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, what do we even have that we have not been given? What is ours that we did not receive? The reality is, it is not if pride exists in your heart, it's where pride exists in your heart and how it's expressed. It's not if you're prideful, it's where does the pride exist in your heart and where is it expressed in community? The second question that we need to tackle this morning is, how does God deal with prideful people? We've defined pride, we've looked at it from some biblical angles and comparisons, we've defined it. Now, how does God deal with it? 1 Peter chapter 5, God is opposed to the proud. 
How does God deal with pride? He's actively opposed to it. The word opposed there is a military word. It describes God taking up military arms against us and going to battle against the prideful person. God has taken up weapons and is continually launching artillery against a prideful heart. When you read the Bible, it really seems like there's no other sin that God hates more than pride. Like, it it almost seems like God would say, I'd rather you be struggling with this sin than with pride. I'd rather you struggle with other sins than with pride. Turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verse uh, 17. Actually, verse 16, starting in verse 16. You remember this list, the the seven things that are an abomination to, to God. Six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, Proverbs 6, verse 16 which are are an abomination to him. Verse 17, the first thing on the list, haughty eyes or prideful eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among the brothers. We did this study in Family Bible Hours a couple months ago, looking at this list. It's a, it's a chiastic structure. The, the mirrors, there, there's bookends that mirror each other. There's seven things. There's a middle one. One and seven agree. Two and six agree. Three and five agree. And four stands in the middle as the crux, right? We looked at that. The, the crux is the heart that's devising wicked plans. But the two outside, sin number one and sin number seven, prideful eyes, leads to somebody who is going to spread strife among brothers. That's why God hates it. God is a God of of unity, and pride brings disunity. Turn a couple chapters over to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. God says he hates pride. What, What is it that you hate? What is it that you hate? I'm sure that we all have lists of things that we detest, that we find an abomination. Whatever you hate, regardless of whatever you hate, you and I hate nothing the way that God hates pride. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, The Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. The Bible tells us that part of what it means to be God is to utterly humiliate prideful people. Job chapter 40, God talking with Job. Remember Job saying, man, I could do your job. And God says, really? Could you do my job? Let's talk about the things that I'm required to do. I tell the, the ocean waves where to go, stop here, don't go any further, don't, I tell them that. I, I number the sand, uh, the grains of sand, I, I know all the stars in heaven, I play with the huge animals in the sea, I, I know all those things. And one of the things he says in Job chapter 40 is, hey, do you, can you see every human on the earth? Because I can see them all, and the prideful people I have to go out and destroy. That's my job as God, can you do that? Job obviously says No. To be God, you have to be able to look at everyone on earth at the exact same time and bring low the prideful. God's opposed to the proud. 1 Peter chapter 5, he's opposed. Thomas Watson, this is one of my favorite quotes on this issue. The proud man is the mark which God shoots at, and God never misses his mark. The proud man is the mark which God shoots at, and God never misses his mark. 
Again, there are so many biblical examples of this. Second Chronicles chapter 26, Uzziah is lifted up in his heart. He's exalted such that he thinks he's outside of the boundaries of God's law. Um, I, priests only are allowed in the temple, but I'm a good king. I can go into the temple. God strikes him down with leprosy. Miriam tries to rebel against Moses. She's struck down with leprosy. David counts his army in a great plague of 70,000 of his people die. The disciples argue about who's going to be the greatest on the night before Jesus is going to be murdered. Peter swears loyalty to Christ only to deny him three times. Paul tells us that God sent him a thorn in the flesh because he was prideful. And he wanted, God wanted him to be kept from being prideful. God's opposed to the proud. D.L. Moody says it this way, God sends no one away except those who are full of themselves. If we ignore pride in our lives and allow it to remain undisturbed, then we've declared war against God. We've declared war against God. And he in turn, in 1 Peter chapter 5, declares war against us. So we've seen what pride is, a biblical definition of pride. We've seen how it manifests itself. We've seen God's attitude towards it and action against it. But the verse doesn't end there. And praise the Lord the verse doesn't end there. Because if the verse just said God is opposed to the proud, then the reality is God's opposed to every single one of us. But Peter says, but God gives grace to the humble. There's a condition. You will receive grace if you know that you need it. That's why Moody says, God's not going to send you away if you say, I have nothing to offer you. God sends away those who are full of themselves. If you do not think that you need anything from God, then why are you even going to him? That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees in the Gospel of Mark. He said, I didn't come for the, the people that think that they're well. I came as a doctor, as a physician for the people who think that they are sick and in need of help. So God gives grace to those who say, I am nothing and I need help. A.W. Pink says, grace is the favor of God to those who not only have no positive deservings of their own, but also who are thoroughly ill-deserving and ultimately hell-deserving. God only bestows grace where there is true humility. Humility. God gives grace to the humble, that Greek word lowly, lowly-minded, having a humble opinion of yourself, a deep sense in your own heart of your moral illness. Again, we've said this a number of times over the summer. Humility is being wonderfully unimpressed by yourself. It's just looking at yourself and going, I've got nothing good to offer. I've got nothing to offer you. If anything good comes from me, it's because of God. And if anything bad comes from me, it's because I'm not walking in God's ways. That's, that's all we've got. Therefore, I can't look down on anybody. I can only encourage others to walk the path that I'm walking. I, I, don't, I don't have bread to offer you. God has bread. I'm one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. The opposite of pride is humility. And humility, as we know in Matthew 5, always accompanies saving faith. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I've got nothing to offer you, God. Augustine said, for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. Luther said, it's God's nature to make something out of nothing. That's why he cannot make anything out of him who is not yet nothing. Humility is essential. 
Spurgeon says it this way, if we think we can do anything ourselves, all we will get from God is the opportunity to try. You can do it yourself? Okay, go ahead. Go try. So, as we launch on Thursday our study through this, this book called Humility, and ultimately it's a, it's a Bible study through what the Bible says about humility. It's just a bunch of sermons compiled, put together in a book, and then a bunch of sermons outside the book and some notes to dive into our own hearts on what the Bible says about humility. How do we wrap this up from, for today? Again, we're going to come back next week and talk about the positive application of how do we walk in humility. John Stott helps us. He says, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Why? Because we need grace. We want grace. And in order to receive grace, we have to have humility. How do we do that rightly? How do we gain that, that grace and walk in humility rightly? We'll talk about that next week. But as we come to the Lord's Supper, I think we can answer it with one answer right now. How do we start walking down the path of humility? John Stott says, Far from offering us flattery, the cross undermines our self-righteousness, and we can stand before it only with a bowed head and a broken spirit. D.A. Carson says, How can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? We come to partake of these elements. We remember that Jesus had to be crushed. He had to be broken because of our sin, because of our pride. Jesus' blood had to be spilled to cleanse us from our sin. And in its very essence, our sin is pride. So John Stott says it this way, and we'll conclude with this quote. Every time we look at the cross, which is what we're doing this morning, Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It's your sin I'm bearing. It's your curse I am suffering. It's your debt I am paying. It's your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us, Stott says, have an inflated view of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Father, I pray that as we come to the foot of the cross now, we would shrink to our true size. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gains, whatever I have as gain, I count as loss and I pour contempt on all of my pride. Father, as the elements are distributed to us and as we ponder what these elements mean, what the Lord's Supper means, even the, the word communion, yes, we get to communion with you, but it's communion as a whole, corporately together, as one body, one fellowship, unified around the, the shrunkenness of our condition. We all stand before the cross on level ground. We are shrunk down to our true size. We cannot shine down on others. We cannot express our opinions or our views above others because Jesus 
went to the cross for us. He died for us. He, he had to die for us because of our pride. So God, do a mighty work in us, even in these moments as we prepare to partake of communion. Do a mighty work to shrink us down to size. Utterly humble us because you're opposed to the proud and we don't want to be ultimately humiliated by you. We want to do the work of humbling ourselves so that we come to you with nothing to offer and we leave with everything in our hands because of grace. As we meditate on the cross, shrink us down to our true size. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I'm going to ask the men to come and...